This is Customer Experience Leaders, a podcast produced by Rated. It's a show where we reveal the secrets of how great brands delight their customers. Most sales organizations are focused on selling and people hate being sold. Most people love to buy. So what we need to learn as a sales organization is to stop selling and to assist customers to buy. That's the voice of Jaco van der Koy. He's the founder of Winning by Design. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey. Hi there, I'm Michael Momsen. Merry Christmas, Michael. <laughs> yes, <laughs> thank you. It's been a big year for us here at Customer Experience Leaders and we're coming to you over the holiday break with an extra long episode that is just packed with amazing insights. And we thought we'd let this one run a little longer so you have some time to kind of ponder it coming into the new year. The overarching topic for today's episode is customer-focused sales. Yes, absolutely. And Yako has been a dream guest of mine because I've thought about this topic. How do you practically become great at sales? Namely, how do you become great at customer-centric sales? In fact, at my company, Reddit, we've done all sorts of strange things to become more customer-centric in sales. Like I actually renamed our entire sales team partnership managers and that, <laughs> that just confused our customers because <laughs> I was like, we don't want to sell you with something that you don't need. Like we want to partner with you in helping make your customer experience better. On that journey, it led me to the team at Winning by Design. And since then, we've actually started implementing a lot of their approach to sales and customer success. So, I'm absolutely thrilled to have Yako on this blockbuster episode as he really is a world leader in B2B sales and we really unpack and explore this topic of how do you practically become great at making the sales process an excellent customer experience. Yes, a couple of highlights to look out for on this episode. Firstly, some of the mistakes that you're probably making during the sales process. Secondly, how to ensure that your sales approach is really about the customer and not you. And thirdly, how to best train for a customer-focused sales culture. So, we started out by asking Yako, what do we need to rethink about the traditional sales process? One of the key things that we need to rethink, Adam, is if you look currently at sales, it is not really approached from a scientific perspective. It is really approached from, in many cases, from a gut feel perspective. And rather than causality, we're primarily uh, looking just at some person having an opinion. And they say, like, here, this is how I would want to do it. This is how they want to do it. What we see today is that, you know, like sales, really, there's an amount of data flowing into the system that we have never seen before. And with that data, we can now apply science. By making it more scientific, it becomes more educated. It can be taught, it can be passed. We can actually learn what works and what doesn't work. And so no longer it is opinion-based, but we can actually look at the causality, what works and what doesn't work. When you look at that data and when you research, and you've obviously worked with many organizations, what are some of those big themes that work in particular in a way that's customer-centric? Well, one of the first things that we're seeing is that most salespeople actually primarily apply a form of solution selling. In solution selling, when the customer mentions the pain, they immediately answer to that pain with what they are selling as a solution. Mm. If you say, you know, like I have a toothache, then, you know, like a toothbrush salesperson would say, I would like to sell you a toothbrush. And, you know, like that leads to solution selling. B2B customers are not interested in to directly to that solution. So you often want to learn a little bit more about the impact of that. If the sort of solution selling is, I ask a question, customer immediately says one or two pain things and the, the rep just jumps into awesome, like I'm going to go into pitch mode <laughs> and then pitch, 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 this is what you need and then like let's come up with a deal. If that's sort of maybe the traditional 1990s influence solution sale, what is the recommended approach? 
Essentially, there are four different sales methodologies that we primarily use in B2B. First one is transactional selling. In transactional selling, the customer really knows what they want and they're primarily looking for price, shipment options, very much like an Amazon or a Bull or an Alibaba kind of sale. Second thing is solution selling. Customer describes what their pain is and they probably already have narrowed it down to three options. Mm -hmm. And so they quickly want to learn how do you are different? Do you integrate with XYZ CRM or a marketing automation system? The next one is consultative selling. And in consultative selling, the customer kind of like knows, but you really have to learn a little bit more about their problem and the solution that they're looking for. And what you're essentially looking for and diagnosing for is what is the impact that they want. And the next one is provocative selling. Now, during provocative selling, I do not have the time to actually ask the customer too many questions, but based on my research, often, you know, like a 10Q quarterly statement, I'm reviewing that and I'm provoking the action. One of the most common forms of provocative selling currently used is challenger selling. Now, these are four different sales methodologies. And maybe to use a couple of examples, I suppose in the first transactional, I just need more paper for my office. Uh, <laughs> like it's super transactional. The next level up, maybe what would be an example of that? Think of like something that integrates in a CRM, like a, a lead system or something like that. Right. Or an email marketing tool. Do I use campaign monitor or something else? That's right. And you narrowed it down to three choices as a buyer. And you really want to learn like, hey, how do you differ? Do you integrate with my CRM? Do you integrate with my marketing automation system? You want to know a few questions, but you don't really need to be explained what you really need in the process. The customer in generally already knows what they want. And do you mind just touching on a couple of examples of consultative selling and where we typically see it in provocative selling? Consultative selling, you typically see in SaaS sales right at around $20,000 in annual contract value, whereas a provocative sales technique you commonly see in like $250,000, $500,000 annual contracts, large deals. It doesn't have to be recurring contracts. You just see large-scale contracts where you are replacing an existing massive-scale ERP system and you go like, ah, oh, they currently have an Oracle. We want to replace that. You need to go in with more of a provocative sales approach. Now, the trick is, that in today's world, we essentially need all four. We need to master all four. Mm. When we reach out to a client, we need to use a provocative statement. Then when we get them on a diagnostic call or the discovery call, we need to learn how to be consultative. As it comes down and as they have two or three options, we need to actually learn how to solution sell. And right at the end, when we deal with purchasing, we often have to deal with some form of transactional selling as we give the buyer a 2% discount of some sort for larger organizations. Many companies buy into only one methodology here, but most of all, they miss the kicker of it all. None of these methodologies currently cover where revenue actually is being made, which is way beyond the close. And so the true missing item of all of these is they're only focused maniacally on closing the deal. And the revenue engine, pretty much 75% or more of that revenue comes well beyond the contract close and is based on the services performed after closing the deal, for which we currently today have not defined the methodology. And as you may know, I recently wrote a book about that, the SaaS sales method that starts uncovering what needs to happen post-sale. In your book, uh, Blueprints for a SaaS Sales Organization, your opening chapter, I really quite like how you talk about the customer-centric approach to selling. What is the overall customer-centric approach to sales? Sales comes down to something very simple, Michael. And you know, like I'm already wasting too many words on it as I lead into it, because it's as simple as this. Most sales organizations are focused on selling. Yes. And people hate being sold. That's true. Most people love to buy. 
So what we need to learn as a sales organization is to stop selling and to assist customers to buy. All right, let's explore this. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a great one-liner. We're a buying organization now. All right, we're here to help you buy. Let's go. It's as simple as that. And, you know, like, look at yourself when you walk into a store. Do you like it when somebody merely walk up to you and say, like, oh, well, what can I sell you today? No, if they do a good job, they help you to buy. People do not like being sold. It is just not the nature of human beings that they want to be sold. You know, those days have been gone for long. Mm. Uh, downtown University Avenue in Palo Alto, there are often folks who represent Greenpeace and trying to save the whales. Uh, I'm very fond of saving the largest mammals on our world. You know, I'm just like, hey, how can we help them? If I see these folks approach me with their pad and with their you know, like pen, I will cross the road three times to avoid that I have to walk by them because they're trying to sell me to sign. That's how much I hate being sold. And I love the whales. Yako, I agree. I also cross the <laughs> street for causes and sales pitches that I potentially would even be interested in having, but it's the whole act of something being pushed on you and something that you don't want, which is the sales process versus helping me buy. Maybe talk us through this customer-centric approach where we're helping someone to buy. What's some good examples? In order to solve this, we have to look at causality. And one of the key things with causality is where does it come from? Now, if we are entering people into our pipeline that are a fit for our service, that's where the problems start. We're not talking to the right people in the first place, primarily because we run what we call a volume game. So I'm going to deploy two concepts on you. Volume and how do we get to pain versus fit. First one, volume. If I need to double sales, what is the number one answer that people tell me? What do I need to do with the leads? Well, most people would say hire more salespeople, right? Or fill more pipeline at the top of the pipeline. That's right. Double the leads, double the salespeople. You know, like maybe double the price if you have that opportunity. But primarily people say double something. Mm -hmm. Want to double the revenue. That's not where actually progress comes from. If you want to make an improvement and there's seven actions that are between the customer's first engagement with you and the commitment of them, Seven actions, if you improve that by 10%, then science tells us 1.1 to the power of seven equals 2x. What we need to do is we need to improve things by 10%. No, I'm not saying we need to helicopter parent or drone parent our customers through the entire cycle. I'm not even saying that I need a recording of every meeting ever held. I do not need to know whether somebody was on slide 34 for 25 seconds versus 28 seconds. That is all drone parenting our customer. That has nothing to do with sales. If I can make a 10% improvement, Across seven actions I am with my customer, I can double my sales. That first point of improvement is we need to stop looking at people who are a fit and we need to start working with people who have a pain. Most companies do not have the patience nor ability to look at and to find the people who have a pain. Primarily due to pure laziness and pure use of tools, they are going after customers who are a fit. Meaning it is easier for me to buy a list of 2,000 people and just to preview them with like 20 emails and see who has traction than it is actually to find those 10 I should be selling to from that list of 2,000 in the first place. That means if I start looking and if I really want to work with the right customers and I really want to make sure that the right people enter into my process, first thing I need to learn is, can I identify customers who actually are relevant to me who have a pain based on the solution that I'm selling? Great. So we're at step one. <laughs> what's, what's two, three, four, five, six, seven? I'll give you a few um, because they're not always the same. Number two is we want to make sure that when you then strike that conversation, that you actually have a conversation and not a qualification. Now, let me give you an example. The normal form of qualification most sales organizations use is band. 
budget authority need and timeline. Now you can run me and you can take me through that, but if you ban me as a customer, I tell you, you got all the information, I got nothing out of that, like nothing. You banned me, great. So let's not ban people and consider that having a conversation. Now you see that often when people are launching a drift or some online chat program and the chat system starts asking you like, do you have budget? Are you a decision maker? Like, yeah, sure. That's a great place to start a conversation. Why not? <laughs> what we instead have to do is we have to deploy in winning by design vocabulary we call talker. Tone of voice. Tone of voice needs to be of interest. Now, tone of voice is not just literally tone of voice. It could be emoji. It could be the words in writing. Second thing is learn how to ask questions. Base level, closed and open. But after that, more situational pain. L stands for listening. And I don't mean listening so I can wait for a pause that you strike so I can then start talking again. I'm actually meaning active listening by listening to what words matter to you. K stands for keeping notes. Make sure that you can repeat it, which is R. And E stands for elaborate and engage in the conversation. That's talker. That's number two. Number three, what we are looking for is that you don't pitch, but that you actually diagnose the customer. Pitching in generally is when I'm selling you what I want. Diagnosing is, and then I'm looking for what you as a customer want. And the fourth point, and I'll keep it at those four, is in the negotiation part, do not negotiate. Most people are not skilled to negotiate. And I'm talking about 95 out of 100 are not skilled to negotiate, yet they're negotiating. What we simply ask customers to do, and sales leaders or CEOs of a company, is at the end of the month, end of the quarter, take down all the company deals that came in, measure the performance. And if you see 20%, 20%, 25%, 15%, you got a negotiation problem. Your people are actually giving away the max discount. What you need to learn is how to trade. In order for you to learn how to trade, I need to have a trade list. I need to know that like, if the customer wants this, I'm gonna ask for that. By trading, you're not devaluing your product. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with you. And I think, you know, like all these little examples you're giving are great theoretical examples of what not to do and, and how to do it better. Could you tell us about an organization who you think is doing this approach really well? Who's doing a really customer focused sales process? Let me ask you, what was one of your best experiences you have had, Adam, over the past weeks, months? Let's say, uh, let's say Apple. Apple. Okay, now when you walk into the store in Apple, what do they ask you? Hey, how you doing? What can I help you with? How can we help you today? Yeah, it, it's a very open question and they're kind of not looking to force a decision upon you. They're being inquisitive. Adam, as simple as this is, what you just defined is a problem that many, many companies have. If I place an inbound on your site and give me what the most common inbound clicks on a website are, and I'll start off with one to make sure that we talk about the right thing. Click for demo, right? Want to demo. That's an inbound click. What else? Pricing. Pricing, second. Fill in a form. Uh, get started. Get started, okay? Uh, download ebook. Download PDF. Download the blue, whatever. Now, watch what happens to the following. What we determine is that these are inbounds, okay? And inbounds often are request a demo, contact sales for pricing, download ebook, sign up for a webinar, and so on. Half of them are not inbounds. This is a key problem. We look at inbound to be time sensitive. A true inbound is time sensitive. If I download an ebook that has you know, 68 pages, I don't need a call literally five minutes later to tell me, did you read the ebook and can I help you with it? <laughs> Yet what happens is it enters an inbound process and, you know, like, and that process was created around time sensitivity. The process was executed right, but the input condition was wrong. Now here's what happens. 
When you walked into that Apple store, what's the first thing that person said? Can I help you? Can I help you? How can I help you? That's a true inbound response. Person picks up the phone and says, how can I help you today? Person doesn't say, oh, thank you for coming in. Really appreciate it. I just went to your website, noticed that you do this. I thought, let me ask you a few questions. <laughs> like, Dudskis, you're selling already. The customer came to you. Can you just have the common decency to start the conversation with, thank you for coming in. How may I help you? Now, that's a true response to a true inbound. And what's interesting is not only is this just common courtesy, it's just common decency to, to be polite, but what I also find interesting is it allows for flexibility as well because you don't know what stage of the buying process somebody is at. They might be at the provocative stage or the solution stage or the transactional stage. You don't know if they've narrowed down to a shortlist or if they don't even know what their problem is yet. And so, if you launch straight into transaction, which I think is what most sales people do, which is why we cross the road to avoid people. They're going, buy, buy, buy now, here's the price. Then you've missed all of these other opportunities and missed all of these other different routes that the customer may actually be you know, at a different stage in that process. Adam, just to give you an idea of what just happened, you asked me a question, didn't you? I did. Who answered the question? Yeah, I, well, I, I kind of did in the end. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> This is a very meta podcast, Yako. You come on the show and then uh, you're making us do the work. Great. <laughs> is, does that mean that I get paid then? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is this a metaphor for how to approach sales in a better way? Absolutely. This is customer centric. Do you really think that you want to walk into a doctor's office limping on one side? Doctor says, oh, sh- you know what? That leg needs to come off. I already seen it. I've seen it 20 times before. And you go like, dude, um, I actually already had that for 20 years in my life. I, I'm just here for a cold. Well, as odd as it may seem, in many cases, that is essentially how sales works. Now, we're not going to solve that by just simply you know, being a podcast and people listen to this podcast. You know, like It's great. All it does is raise awareness. If we want to truly solve that problem, we actually got to educate this. And we can't educate this as, a, oh, uh, we're going to educate this on the sales kickoff for two days. Or across, you know, like think of the following as an analogy. Over the next two days, we're going to train you how to finish an Ironman. And we're going to give you everything to do, what stuff to buy, which websites to go to. And then we're not going to see you for 12 months. And then at the end of the 12 months, we not only want you to be capable of finishing an Ironman, actually, we want you to finish top 10. Do you think that has a likelihood of happening? And so today, what we see is the exact problem with that. We're giving these people two-day sales kickoffs in the beginning of January, February. Everybody hyped up, thinks it's going to go right, and it doesn't. The problem is not that the older generation cannot use that. The older generation can because this is sales kickoff number 24 in a career of 24 years. The problem is who we are screwing over are the young people. The young people who are given 90 days to call on a CEO where otherwise we were given four to six years. And that is unfair. Those people do need more training. They're actually asking for more training than nobody in sales ever asked for training. Now we have a new generation that asks for training. And what do we do? We give them a one-day training. We know that that doesn't work. Like swimming, you can't learn it from a book or from a one-day. The model that you need for training your salespeople on this is very known. It's called 10 20, 70. You can Google it. It's not something we invented. something we simply learn to, to leverage. 10% happens in the classroom. 20% is peer play, role play between each other. And 70% needs to be taught into the field. That is how you train somebody to do their job. If you want to be successful, you train your sales organizations. So, Yako, welcome to the quickfire round. This is our game show segment where we ask you quick questions and you've got to give us some quick answers. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. 
I'm going to start us off, uh, and your time starts at the end of the first question. What brand do you look to as an example of great customer experience? Amazon. Great. What uh, job did you learn the most at? At Philips, uh, I was an engineer, and I learned there how to actually listen first to the requirements before you start coding. What skill are you terrible at? Listening uh, in, in contrast, I probably talk too much. What job did you enjoy the most? Uh, the job I enjoyed the most was uh, um, a repair manager for a forklift truck where you have to do a lot of welding and you know, like you're, you're working on a lot of like the wheels of the forklift truck. So that was just a fun job. Jaco, what's the best advice you've ever received? When you're young, you in generally are not learning enough from your mistakes. And so one of the things that I learned from, you know, like over time is just that your mistakes are quite good. And in the beginning, you think that you shouldn't make them. Later on in life, you learn that you should make mistakes. You just should minimize the damage you cause with a mistake. And so it's better to make a whole bunch of small mistakes than one gigantic big one. Yoko, what non-work-related thing are you really into right now? Right now, I'm back into swimming. I used to be a triathlete, actually competed quite a bit. Um, and over the past months, my knee started to hurt running, so I'm back in the pool. And finally, Yako, what is your guilty pleasure? Chocolate. <laughs> that took like a millisecond to answer. <laughs> uh, Yako, I want to explore what you're talking about, which is effectively changing more than a process or tweaking with a process or getting in a speaker at an event or listening to this podcast. You effectively need to start changing sales culture. And so I want to start talking about what that looks like, especially when people are often targeted on the outcomes and driven to the outcomes, which is you know a sales number. And then it may not feel natural to do some of the more customer-centric things at the front, which will lead to a better number in the long term. But I'd still love to hear your opinion where you've seen this go well. If there's not a particular company that comes to mind, maybe sort of describe what is the essence of what looks really good when you've seen this work well. Okay. The company I'm thinking about here is Adobe. Okay. Adobe is one of the Winning by Design clients, and I'm going to give you a cultural difference here. Think of a group that is role-playing and think of a company like Adobe letting all of its executives know that if you are at a company of which role-playing is engaged, we want you to spend five to 15 minutes when the role plays are happening. And what we see is happening is the following. These executives, they step in on the floor and they say, oh, where is role play? Oh, role play today is between 9 and 9.15. They step into the role play. We have taught the executives, we want you to fail. And there's a reason for it. If you do not fail, you do not teach your organizations that it's okay to fail. The problem is most executives historically never failed. Think about looking back. I was born in the 70s. When you were born in those ages, teachers were always right. Preachers were always right. Your parents were always right. Your coaches were always right. And so now we live in a culture where actually mistakes need to happen to learn. And so the first thing we want to do is we want to make sure that the executives participate in a role play like anybody else. And by simply participating, five, 15 minutes, don't need to practice. Feel like everybody else. New generations love to see you fail because then they realize it's okay. Learn from it. Move on. So what you're describing is organizations that do it well, but it starts in the management approach, which instead of being old school, I worked really hard in my <laughs> in my younger years and had lots of sweat to get here. Therefore, I need to see that in this generation and they just need to pick up the phones more and they need to work harder. They actually need to see them 
take these new approaches and actually see them fail in that process so that they can be part of the learning journey and embrace that culturally as an organization. Is that the right way to sort of summarize what you're seeing? That's the right way of saying it. It just came from the uh, Adobe uh, kickoff. And what happened on stage is what makes the difference. Teams were rated and graded on role play. The final four finalists made it. The final four finalists did a shootout. And when we see the shootout, we are actually practicing on stage. Now, here's what happens. If you understand this for your listeners, this is the critical part. We role play this out one-on-one and we role play out four candidates, right? Or four contestants. Uh, The other three contestants have a headset on so they can't hear. After each contestant, I then ask the audience for 30 seconds to discuss what they learned from it. And then they feed that back. This means that the entire audience now becomes a learning experience and not just a contestant. Now, that is the modern approach to learning. That's the reason why we role play. I don't need you to role play so you can learn. I need to role play so everybody else around us can join and therefore it allows us to learn faster. That is a modern approach to coaching. What we are rolling out inside Winning by Design is learning not to how to be a trainer, but how to be a coach. And so in an ideal world, you're taking the structure of a customer-centric approach and then what you would be role-playing it weekly and then you'd be having reflection moments effectively both the person that was in the role play reflecting on it as well as the audience so they're not sitting there judging and then the next one but there's a there's a group learning um maybe describe what is the ideal rhythm if you will to make sure that it doesn't just become this you know annual kickoff or the sort of sales trainer that comes in you know once a year or whatever it may be okay well to start with an insult you didn't listen completely so you missed one key point (laughs) okay let's do it again (laughs) okay so one of the key points to start off with is the science part The science part says 10% improvement. Now, in order to make that improvement, I want to make sure that they're customer-centric. And then what I want to do, I want to make sure that I teach them through role play. The right cadence of that, what we call, is monthly, weekly, daily. Every month, we set a theme. Every week, we execute against that theme. And then every day, we perform an activity. Let me give you an example. One of the most common ones, a discovery call. Let's say that the theme of this month is a discovery call. Then in week one, we may discuss how to open in the first five minutes of the call. And on day one, we may learn how to open up the meeting. On day two, we may learn how to ask questions. On day three, we may learn how to summarize. Day four, we may learn how to do a use case. Monthly, weekly, daily is a good cadence. Now, that also means coaching and learning is not a thing that you do once and then you're done with it. It is a process that is always there. Who's somebody that you've worked with that you know was maybe taking some of the wrong steps in the beginning and you started working with them implemented this new methodology this new sales culture and then what was the outcome at the end how did that change their business one company that comes to mind is zenefits under the new leadership of jay fulcher zenefits is a company who sells to small to medium businesses and what they actually sell is a hr solution that companies can get started with really quick When we rolled into Zenefits, one of the first activities we did is we set up a classroom in the building. And Jay, having been a former friend that I've worked with when he was the CEO of Yala, he allowed me to do that. We essentially folded up the ping pong table, put all the toys away, turned up the tables, brought in the whiteboards and say, why don't we instead turn this game room into a learning environment? What we have done for far too long is we thought that by giving these young people toys, beer, coffee machines. We thought that that was a replacement for what they actually needed. We fooled them. And with it, we fooled ourselves. 
What we see today, or the conversation that we need to have is, look, that coffee, that is not a form of a payment. That is just a form of a must have. So let's not talk about how cool your coffee machines is, right? What we need these folks to have is a proper education. And an education that gives them a career, not just to work for this company, but with the responsibility of those who provide that education to understand that maybe those people will take that education elsewhere. And that is fine. And that is okay. And so putting the football table away and replacing it with a whiteboard and books is actually quite a learning experience. Now, what we see at Zenefits, they actually did it. They went to the program. They created the sales academy inside the company. They brought in experts, not just me, others too. We recommend that obviously all kinds of experts are brought in. And this particular organization went through a metamorphosis. And a metamorphosis, stop playing games and start teaching your people how to do their jobs correctly. You would assume that if you take an approach that is what you have uh, described, which is aligned to not shoving something down customer in terms of through your process, but you're taking something that is empathetically and genuinely listening to them and solving real problems and adding value through that process, you would assume that there would be a bump in sales productivity as a result over time. Maybe you can help validate that assumption. Maybe I can school you. Is that actually what you wanted to say? (laughs) Let's do it. (laughs) Okay. Bring it, bring it, bring it. Listen to the attitude. (laughs) Michael, as I'm more the attitude and also to keep it entertaining. Folks, we are not here to close the deal. Your mindset is wrong. The mindset is with sales, I actually get what I want. That's not what you want. You want profitable customers. You do not want more sales. You want more profitable customers. So winning more deals actually may not get, because for all we know, they may churn. Let's say they churn on six months on average. That means I still got to apply resources for the next six months for those accounts I should have never won in the first place. So the objectivity here is not to get more sales. Objectivity should be to win more of the right customers that impact my profits, whatever it is that I want. That is the goal. And once people in recurring business start to realize and let go of the maniacal focus of winning the customer, but rather focus on being profitable, those companies will be successful. Now, I get that everybody wants to have a, create a unicorn. We're not unicorn trainers. We're not here in the business of making unicorns successful. And most of the companies in Australia, America, throughout the world, they're not unicorns, right? They're people just trying to make a profit. I think it's you know like something like 80 or 90% of economies are made up of small business. And so that profitability focus, I think, is actually a real mindset shift that is maybe different to the culture that we've all been brought up with, I think. So it's a bit of a challenge. And that is right. And so the culture we've been brought up uh, with, Adam, is what we call a capacity culture. It's like work harder, do more. We want more, more logos, logos on the wall, right? Oh, how how successful are we as a company? Look at our logo wall. Folks, logos don't buy, people buy. A key advice we give to companies who want to be more customer-centric, look, can we just have pictures of people that you work with, the customers, and hang them on the wall? Yeah, I love that. And forget about the logos, right? Hang, and you take a selfie with the customer, not to publish it necessarily. I mean, that's great too, but hang them on the wall when you walk in. This is our family. These are the people who got us here. Small change for me, big impact. Wow, this is amazing and getting the cultural stuff right, you know, is it's a replumbing. It's not just a replumbing of process, it's a replumbing of mindset and clearly that would need to 
have very senior leadership buy-in and it would go through all the usual elements of, of culture change rather than just bringing a trainer. So I want to sort of park that big topic and actually want to just jump to one sort of very tactical element, which I think becomes important and it sort of becomes a, a cornerstone, if you will, of that, which is sales bonuses and sales targets because you could kind of bring in some of these elements but then if you slap a sales target and a sales bonus and a commission structure that is rewarding short-term behavior even with all the right training elements I would imagine you would still have people drift back into bad behaviors what's the right way to think about sales commissions and targets hire the right people the right people are motivated because they're passionate about what you're selling and when they're passionate a sales commission plan not necessarily will help. Now, I'm not saying that overnight we have to abandon, you know, like something because it's a surefire way to put your company into jeopardy, right? But I'm going to give you a few basic principles of what compensation needs to be like in order to allow us to actually make this transformation. First and foremost, when we compensate, the behavior that is exhibited needs to have a very short loop to the reward that you get for it. Oh, I like that. If the behavior of the close involves nine-month cycle and the right behavior was done nine months ago, then people really and generally do not respond very well to a commission plan. Number two, what we want to make sure is that when we provide the bonus or the commission, that it actually motivates the person. Money doesn't motivate. Let me give you a practical example. Skystream during 2006 and seven, a guy named Vince closed a $10 million deal with Disney. That $10 million deal in Disney gave him a significant commission check, a couple of hundred thousand dollars. When he ran that check, he went and he got a brand new Lexus. He drove that Lexus on the parking lot. The entire company, this is 2006, the entire company went outside to check out Vince's new Lexus. Tom later on bought an Audi TT, first Audi TT, one of the first ones. Everybody loved that success. Oh, look at that. Salespeople making money. Our company must be doing great. I would love for you today in Silicon Valley, when you get paid to show up with a Tesla and ask on the Slack channel, if everybody can come and admire your car that you knew bought. I just want to know how many would show up. Like, go ahead, tweet that picture of the stack of money on what you closed, right? Go ahead, let's see if that is that people like it. My point is the audience has changed. The audience is no longer that interested in money. But the audience has also shown us what they are interested in. Education, career, career movements. And for us, if we want to really reward people, we need to stop looking at the shortcut, which is just paying people off and then later on wonder why they left because somebody else across the street paid more money. Like, Adutsky, you actually just motivated them over the past 18 months that that was the model that you're going to do. Somebody across the street outbid you and now you've lost them. And now you come and wondering why they're gone. Educate these people. Now, there's some other things too. We don't only have to reward them in education. There's other ways of rewarding them. I'll give you another example. A key difference in today's sales force is that they operate as a team. They no longer operate as individuals. Yes, very true. They operate as a team. If you want to create true competition and reward, put two teams up against each other. Whoever wins gets the trip, the ski trip. Now, let's see if one person on the team doesn't show up every day for work how the other people on the team are starting to respond to uh, who doesn't show up. They go like, excuse me, you're right now getting us out of a ski trip. And now the team holds itself accountable. We need to think more about ways of compensating and getting what we want rather than compensating the old models and thinking that that still works because it has started to stop working to the extent that we want. And I can simply give you this stat. If so many salespeople are truly motivated by compensation plans, 
shouldn't we almost everybody hit quota? Because, hey, they're money motivated. Most people are not hitting quota. This is a fundamental rewiring of our processes, our people, our culture, our operations, Adam, our profit model. It's You hit the nail on the head. But let me tell you why this happens, okay? Because once you understand why and you realize when it happened and why it happened, and you get that through and you understand it, you go like, oh, we've done it wrong. Okay. Yeah. That's what I feel like right now. That's what, like, <laughs> right this moment here is what I feel like. <laughs> Look. The problem with me is I lived the old days and I remember what it was like. If I go back to my B2B early sales years, and I was 26, 27, I was the young person in the sales team by a decade, maybe two. Most salespeople I work with were all 45, 55, some even 65. B2B, high-end sales were generally driven by people who have to make a lot of money and generally who had mortgages, who had like, like families, often, you know, like we have dropped because of SaaS because of the recurring payment forms, we can't pay people $450,000 annual salary anymore. Yeah, because we're not closing half a million dollar deals. Like we're closing four grand a month deals or whatever it may be. Exactly. So the sales organization that we now need, their average age is somewhere between 25 and 35. That generation is not motivated necessarily because they don't have the mortgage of a house yet. They do not have the lifestyle established that requires them to be so money driven. If you understand that the core fundamentals, we didn't move one decade down in SaaS salespeople. We didn't move one decade out. We moved two decades down. We moved from 45-year-olds to 25-year-olds, and we're better for it. Now, we're sitting in this transition time where we have to learn how to deal with the transition, like we live between cell phone and landline, and we have to currently operate both. But the new generation coming on board, the 25, 26, 27 years old, they're admirable young professionals. We can help them. They want education. They want to help the customer solve the problem. They do not like sending a thousand emails and spamming them. If we make them do it, they're going to leave the job that we need them to do. We got to help them. And what we as 45, 55, 65-year-old managers need to learn is that we were raised in an era of working harder capacity. And they are raised in an era of working smarter. So, Yako, I am a believer. I'm now believing the gospel I am a listener and I'm saying this sounds great, but oh my God, it's a bit daunting. I have to like rewire so much and I have to get people in my organization on board, et cetera, et cetera. What's the best place to get started for people who want to start this journey and say, yes, like I genuinely want our sales team to move into this customer-centric approach and invest in learning, invest in people, all the good stuff that we've touched on. What's the best place to get started? First things first. You need to realize in the situation that you're in before you're willing to make a choice. If you do not realize what you're in, you're never going to be motivated. So the listeners who listen to this got to go like, crap, I'm actually exactly in that mode. Second thing, there's a hotel in LA and, you know, it's a fantastic hotel. It's called the Magic Castle. Have you heard of it? I have not, but it sounds intriguing. <laughs> it sounds very intriguing. <laughs> Think of the following. Magic Castle, rated fourth rated, best rated hotel. Look it up. Magic Castle, Los Angeles Hotel. For the listeners, look it up. Fourth rated best hotel. Then look at the pictures, people. I dare you. I double dare you. Look at the pictures. It is a restructured apartment complex from the 50s. It is a great hotel. It's yellow. Look at the picture for the yellow. It has a swimming pool slightly bigger than a hot tub. Why was it rated fourth best rated hotel? Because it has a popsicle hotline. Here's what the Popsicle Hotline. There's a red Popsicle Hotline. Look it up. You're going to love it. It's a red Popsicle Hotline. And when you see that, when you pick up that phone, within 30 seconds, you're going to be served the Popsicle's taste of your choice. (laughs) 
That's fantastic. What they do is they do their one moment well. That one moment. <laughs> that makes them the fourth rated best hotel in Los Angeles. Pick a few of the key moments that matter. Pick a few. Pick four for, you know, for starters. Then map and create the best possible experience for your customers you can on those four moments. Then teach your people. Teach them how to do it right. Coach them. Role play it out. Make those moments slightly better. On four moments, you need to improve by 20%. On five moments, you need to improve by 50%. On seven moments, you need to improve by 10%. Pick these moments, train your team, double your sales, and hopefully when you listen to the customers have a pain, you actually will double your profits as well. That's great because it can be daunting, right? Like I need to like re-architect everything, this culture and everything here, but like just start by being, you know, the best at taking the first inbound call, right? Be the best popsicle delivery, um, just do one element excellent and then you can always expand from there. Now, before we end, may I reverse the roles on both of you? Let's do it. I think you've done that a little bit already, <laughs> Yako, but sure, <laughs> feel free. I would love to learn from you. What is the one key takeaway that you, you learned today that you think you need to pass on uh, and so that you can pass on to other people so to make their lives better? And let's start with Adam. I think the one thing for me is to focus on everything that happens after the sales process. So less on sales and more on profitability. That's a great key takeaway. This conversation hit me between the eyes relative to the ongoing nature and the culture of training. Even though we have implemented a lot of this stuff and we think about things in the same way, we've all of a sudden tripped up and fallen into the old habit of, oh, let's do something you know big every three months and let's you know, hold a, a nominal sort of sales topic where we maybe have a training element. We've sort of forgotten the role play things. It's a bit hard and you know it's quite cumbersome and it's sort of not in the daily, weekly, monthly rhythm. So uh, for me, the big takeaway is you, know, you have to do more than just believe this stuff and implement maybe a few of the processes to to have this living and breathing, you have to have training happen on a regular basis. That's right. And you know, like to address both, starting with Michael, you have to learn that the organization by itself is not responsible for the training, but the people on staff are also responsible for their training. So if you have one person who's really capable of doing email, then that becomes that person's responsibility. Oh, that's nice. Now we call this concept, each one teach one. You learn and you create as an organization, you facilitate the framework of that. You're responsible for making sure it happens. You're not responsible for teaching because these folks actually can coach each other. What's actually really amazing is how much you can just learn from yourself by yourself. Like the magic of recording a customer call or a meeting and just sitting back and playing it and then reflecting on that yourself and go, oh, what could I have done better? You're probably right. You know, and even sometimes when I get some of the team to do this, they end up finding the right 70, 80% <laughs> takeaways themselves, right? They actually don't need a sales coach guru to come in and actually you don't get the learnings unless you find it yourself either and you had the aha moment, right? Michael, the great takeaway that you gave down here is, you know, like do the call review. Now, I want to let you know where you trip up and how companies actually can do it well because there's a practical knowledge involved in there. If you do a call review and you have three calls a day, it will be very hard for you to review three calls a day on top of that. So it becomes very daunting. Now, Practical implementation that has learned us that we can say, hey, this week we talked about discovery opening call. Can anybody this week, by Thursday, I want everybody to share a brief clip of a great opening that they did this week or where they stumbled. Oh, nice. And so then they have to listen to their own call. They're like, oh, today was a good call. And they send it in on Friday. And then as Friday, we can review it as a team, right? Now, the key thing down here is that when we review it as a team, that essentially everybody learns at the same time. So the learning process is only one hour, right? So those are practical implementation. We call them 
Top Gun, we call them disco dojos, right? Where actually, you know, like we and the fun element. Sometimes we pause the recording and we go like, okay, what have we learned that Johnny should be doing now? And everybody starts answering, should be doing this. And we go, what? What do you guys think that Johnny did, right? And then if Johnny does it correctly, everybody's cheering. And if Johnny doesn't do it, we're all booing and laughing at it, right? That is a way of learning. And it's the same way. If you guys do sport, it's the same way. If we're going to shoot the hoops and you miss it and you miss the board, we're laughing at you. Of course, it's fun. Shoot another one, right? <laughs> but that is the that is the concept. Now, the key thing down here, and this is this on this particular point, is the last point, is it cannot be opinion-based. If I compare your call against an opinion, and I am as the VP of sales say, like, no, that's not how you should have done it, we cannot deal with that because those are opinions. We need to make them framework-based. So you point to the element in the framework that got missed as opposed to, I didn't like the way that you said that. Exactly right. Somewhere, if the tonation is wrong, you can point it out. But under talker, which like I say, look, your tone of voice was wrong when you wrote that back. But essentially, it is the framework because that holds everybody accountable to the same framework. And out of any industry, the sales industry needs this more than anything else, right? Because we've sort of been built on pseudoscience and we built on snake oil <laughs> methodologies, but actually bringing a, a scientific-like rigor to it and building a, a process and a framework and a blueprint approach to it allows for this repeatability and allows for great consistency of how the customer wants to buy, <laughs> how the customer wants to be sold to. Exactly. And that's the reason why I started Winning by Design in 2013. And, you know, I'm a former engineer, you know, trained by Philips in the Netherlands. And, you know, at the point it was 280,000 people. This is just a way of looking at it from a process-driven approach. All right, Yako, you've got me hanging on the edge of my seat. What's your response to my takeaway? (laughs) So your key takeaway and customer success is the following. Is the realization that what happens after the win does not only apply an exponential factor, but is actually multiplied what's called compound impact. That means that essentially the profit, the cash register is managed by customer success. This is one of the biggest misnomers that we currently have, that we see sales as the organization that runs the cash and customer success who makes us love the customer. And as some of you may see on the art of making love that you can find on YouTube. And what you find there is that essentially I believe that we've got it all wrong. We have to flip these two. It is the role of sales to make the customer love us. And it's the role of customer success to actually operate the cash register. Yako, you have been extremely generous with your time uh, in both schooling us, helping us see what is the right way to think about uh, sales culture and a very practical way to get started. Uh, Obviously, I highly recommend all your content and uh, you also have some fantastic YouTube videos. Yako, thank you so much for coming on the Customer Experience Leader Show. Thank you very much for having me. For the listeners out there, I want to just pass on one thing. With great knowledge comes great responsibility. What you have learned today, all I can ask for is, can you please pass it on? If we want to truly make a change, this is not going to come from some centralized organization who is going to a different cadence. It is the listeners to this podcast that need to do it. And so with that, I want to say thank you for having me. What a bombshell episode. (laughs) We really let the tape roll much longer than we usually do, but there was just so, so, so much gold in this episode. We really, really wanted to share it all with you. So, Adam, how do we unpack the fire here? (laughs) It's going to be a long takeaway section as well. We're going to add another hour to the episode. Yeah, I I think as a result, we usually try and stick to four takeaways per episode. I think we're going to go a little bit longer and extend that to eight for this one. So, yeah, strap yourself in. My first takeaway from this discussion was that customer experience focus sales is 
actually not about selling to people. It's about helping people to buy. Mm. And I mean, fundamentally, this is actually about just having some empathy for the customer and helping them with their needs, which is really to find a solution to their problem and not to help yourself with your needs, which is to increase revenue or cash a commission check. So it was just so interesting when Yako said, you know, people love to buy, but they hate to be sold to. It's like, of course. So yeah, just have a much more buyer oriented mindset and help them with what they need. Yeah, and on that note, that sort of takes me to my takeaway, actually. Like, helping people to buy really is about using the right approach at the right time. And I was quite familiar with the four different sales methods that he mentioned, you know, sort of transactional sales, solution, taking a consultative approach, or what's known as the challenger sale. And I hadn't thought of them in the context of using the right one at the right time. And I thought that was a really, really, really great way of thinking about it. So, part of helping customers buy and actually part of being customer centric in your approach is to use the right methodology at the right time you know there's some times where i just actually just want to buy and i want to understand whether you have these features and i'm ready to sign me up like do not start a consultative sale do not start a challenger sale like i know what i want just help me buy like let's take it to the finishing line and there's other times where i'm not quite too sure whether i even need this thing like do we really have a pain point here and a problem and i probably need someone to sort of shake me up right and yeah and someone potentially challenging my mindset and thinking to go oh yeah actually now that I see that, that makes sense. And ideally in all of these, including transactional, you should be adding value in the form of some form of education throughout the process as well. But I I love this concept of the right approach for the right time. Yeah, Michael, I actually really liked this one as well because I wasn't familiar with all four pieces of the puzzle. You know, I've kind of been familiar with the ones that I've been exposed to, namely the transactional and the solution selling models, but I'd not heard of the other two. I mean, transactional selling is sort of sales 101, if you will. I think the ones that are quite famous, almost the gold standards, there's a book called Spin Selling, very, very popular in the late 90s, early 2000s, that covers sort of a very solution sale, consultative type approach. And then they've updated that recently and they have a new book called The Challenger Sale. And so that's also become the Bible, if you will, around working with enterprise customers and sort of challenging them in their thinking. Yeah, so two uh, classic books, Spin Selling and Challenger Sale. My next one was actually about the mindset of improving your sales process and how instead of just trying to double sales by doubling leads, if you improve things systematically across the board, then you're actually going to have much more of a compound effect in improving your sales numbers. And so, if you actually do the math on this, improving seven steps by 10% each gets you the same impact as improving one thing by doubling it. And so, the 10% thing is just, frankly, much more achievable to do. My other big takeaway that stood out for me is working off a framework and they called them blueprints as well. But if you have a framework and a blueprint, it's something that you can scale off and it's something that you can, when you're training and when you're optimizing the machine, when you're adding the 10% and when you're doing the training, then it's not opinion-based and it doesn't change when different leaders come in, but you're working to the blueprint and the framework. Yeah, actually, that's a really nice one. And to follow on with point five, Yako talked about incentivizing your team in the right way. And the example he used is, you know, don't tie a reward to something that happened nine months ago. Reward people on a short time cycle so that the dopamine hit that they get from that reward is closely tied in time to when the behavior was. And so just to sum that up in one line, 
it's really about rewarding the process rather than the outcome. The other big takeaway for me, which I mentioned in the recording when he asked for the takeaways, so this is probably one of the big ones for me, was once you've got the blueprint and the framework in place, you know, that's great. It's actually the ongoing training piece to this and having the the daily, weekly, monthly elements to it. And all the tactical bits, you know, really matter, right? Like when he gave the example of when an inbound request comes in, we should take an Apple Store approach, which is like being open-ended and friendly, genuinely interested in helping, you know, how can I help? And tactical things like shared learning in that process right their top gun thing where you come in with a call and you know that's your best example and then there's shared learning across the team so i think having a culture of ongoing training becomes critical to make the framework come to life so takeaway number seven was also about training you need to teach your organization that it's okay to fail And the way that Yako talked about this was setting up leaders with a platform so that they can demonstrate failure and that communicates to the team that it's okay to fail. So the reason that I guess this is important is because it kind of taps into the growth mindset. And we've talked about this before on the show, continual improvement. And again, I guess similar to the takeaway earlier on, rewarding the process rather than the outcome. Having that failure and that learning that comes from it is super duper important. Yeah, and finally, probably the most important takeaway is how to get started with this stuff. And honestly, like I really, really love all the stuff that the Winning by Design guys do. And so, you can start as simple as going to their website and just go to Amazon, type in Winning by Design and all their books will come up. They are excellent. They're highly practical. They're not filled with fluff. They've got role plays in there ready to go. And then the other one is uh, Yoko has a fantastic video on YouTube called The Art of Making Love. And it really uh, takes you through this process of how sales is really in a dance of finding customers to love and then the sort of customer success motion after the sale kicks in. So I really like this practical approach to how do you become customer centric and really working off a framework and a blueprint. And so there's sort of not pseudoscience behind this, but there's really a framework that you're working off. So jump in there and I'd like to hear some feedback as well. Like if any starts implementing some of these elements I uh, would love to hear from you potentially even be a future guest I think could be really interesting so let's sum them up number one was customer focus sales is really about helping people to buy fantastic number two was using the right approach at the right time number three you can double your sales by improving the whole system by just 10 percent yeah that's really good number four Really work everything off a framework slash blueprint. Number five, make sure you reward the process instead of the outcome. Number six is invest in ongoing training. Number seven, make sure your team knows that it's okay to fail and that you learn from that. And number eight is take action. And the best source of action is having a search for the Winning by Design content, their books, their YouTube videos, their blogs. It's all excellent. And let's start implementing more customer-centric sales tomorrow. And finally, from Michael and I, thank you for listening to Customer Experience Leaders this year. 2018 has been a lot of fun for us and we've had some amazing content from some incredible customer experience leaders. Adam and I have been riffing at length this week behind the scenes about what we want to do with the show next year. And I am excited to say we have got some big plans. (laughs) We got some uh, (laughs) monster guests uh, in the works and we are really, really looking forward to dialing this up and continuing to add value and exploring this really big topic of, you know, how do we all make customer experience better? Really, really looking forward to it. And thanks so much for coming on the journey. And we'd love to connect with you. So, 
add myself or Michael on LinkedIn, send us a message and we read and respond to every single person. So with that, happy holidays and thanks for listening. See you next year. Thanks for listening. Customer Experience Leaders is produced by Rateit. Rateit wants to give every business the power to make their customer experience awesome. And that's why they've built an easy and delightful way for customers to share in-the-moment ratings that feel like conversations rather than survey forms. And they then help you interpret that data and take action. To find out more about how Rateit can help you, head to the website rateitapp.com. That's R-A-T-E-I-T-A-P-P dot com. This podcast is made in partnership with Wavelength Creative. It was produced by me and Christopher Lawson, who also edited and mixed the show. Our theme songs are by Icolix, Peter Cooley and The Shrugs. And finally, thank you for coming on this journey with us, exploring customer experience across many angles throughout 2018. We have big plans for next year, so strap yourself in. But until then, I'm Adam Jaffrey, and on behalf of the entire Customer Experience Leaders team, I want to wish you a safe and happy holiday period. We'll see you next year.